Meow. The Agora podcast is covered under the Bibcot no-gov license. That means the reuse and reproduction is authorized by anyone except governments or their agents. Find out more at bibcot.org. All right, welcome to the Agora Podcast. This is your home for agorism, decentralization, localism, and anti-authoritarian concepts. My name is Penguin, and as always, I'm joined by uh, Sek Magora. And uh, we're here talking about a few things, mostly uh, war and the anti-war movement. I think that's something that we really needed to do a show, just uh, Sek and myself, based on all the conversations that we've had on the topic. Um, and we've discussed that, of course, before. We've had um, Scott Horton on a couple of times. We've had uh, Magnus Penvidia on um, talking about the rally, the, the damn Morse rally in Washington, D.C. on September 11th. Um, hopefully going to be the first of a regular series of uh, events around the country and in D.C. sometimes and around the country and on unison. Um, I hope that becomes a thing. And uh, I would like to actually think about, uh, you know, put, going to planning stages of organizing a movement in my local uh, area or an event. But um, they're also planning to return to D.C. And it was great. A lot of great people there. A lot of uh, well-known people. Very, a lot of kind of virally known people. Um, yeah, it was a pretty good time. Uh, yeah, actually... Being in the heart of DC, I without planning too well, I ended up uh, having to find a place to park my car and uh, missed the uh, what probably probably the best part of the thing, the awesome march from the uh, rally site to the was it, I think the north side of the White House, and uh, well, I actually met back up with the rally at the White House. They had the Ju free Julia Assange truck, and Scott Horton was often by that uh, he was cool um got talked to a lot of people that uh i've i've met online for example um tetsui that we had on the show and his girlfriend um so you know it was a pretty awesome rally i'm not sure if this was in the episode that we actually recorded with magnus or he said this I believe this, he said this in the episode that we actually recorded with them, and I didn't hear this anywhere else, that um, I think the rally did serve primarily to kind of hopefully act as a networking event. And I think that is what I went there trying to do um, because, you know, being, you know, post-political and drawing people from all over the place, at least in this particular one that was in D.C., um, I, it's supposed to be basically a launching point for something something much bigger. Like, if, this, if that was the only event that was it, it wasn't so it wasn't much to speak of i think it more is a rally for us to i guess have more rallies but um and ultimately to do a lot more because you can only accomplish so much with um you know individual rallies but i think people should be able to go from there based on you know the networking the people we met and the experiences that we had i think we can um 
kind of make something of that. And I don't know, uh, Sec, we, we've talked a lot about uh, the anti-war movement over time. I think that's, it's a, to me, it seems like a really unique issue in politics because it's a place where uh, libertarian types, anarchist types, and others can really have a kind of coherent common ground with uh, very different people. Yeah, to me, uh, these days, uh, protesting and, you know, anti-war rallies and that sort of thing, that's primarily, I think, the focus is uh, sort of, like you said, networking and, and building these bridges and, um, you know, you know, releasing a little bit of anger as well, but uh, mainly just finding other people of like mind that you can interact with and possibly move on to something, um, something else. Um, I spent a lot of time protesting years ago and um, I thought I might, I thought we were going to stop a war and I thought we were going to change things and that sort of thing. But uh, um, I became somewhat disenfranchised with it for, for that particular reason. Um, but I, I changed the perspective of how I think about sort of protests Um you know, it's not necessary that you um, you're going to change something with this particular pro protest, but you can uh, get together and sort of share energy with you know lots of like-minded people from lots of different uh, political backgrounds, and I think that alone is is worth it. Um, so that's kind of my thoughts on <clears throat> on protesting and that sort of thing, but. Um, but it was a good turnout at the uh, um, and the wars rally. How many people do you think were there? Yeah, I think so. Um, hmm. You know, I ended up. I would say at least. You know, it wasn't that big. It wasn't that big. I'm not sure if we had 50, 60 people at different points um, as part of it. Could have been more, but um, it's kind of hard to keep track of. It's not everybody wearing the same shirts and doing the same thing. A lot of a lot of different folks up there, but. I know starting off point, you know. Yeah, and I did actually uh, meet some people from I know the LP affiliate from down here. I met some uh, anarchist friends. Obviously, we kind of knew each other from, from Twitter. We kind of hung out. Uh, you know, met. Let's see. I met a total of three guests. I think we've had on the podcast. So that's kind of cool. Um, so it's kind of definitely the kind of thing I wanted to um, go on, and I. Definitely huge shout out to anyone who donated to help get me there. You know, uh, probably couldn't have it without you. And it was uh, more expensive than it ought to be, given that, given my situation. But it's always expensive going in the big city, getting parking and everything. So it was much, much appreciated. And I think some good will come from that, uh, both in relation to the show and also, you know, just in, in general for the wider uh, peace movement. So, so yeah. Did you have sec? Did you have anything to ask about the rally or, or kind of comment about the um, well, anti-war movement? How, how? When did you first kind of become anti-war and and why? You know, I don't know when I became anti-war because I, you know, I I can think all the way back to okay. I guess you know. I don't know if I have been consistently anti-war in the exact same way, but in my formative years, I mean, this is definitely it. In my formative years, what I was, um, let's see, so 9-11, ninth grade, 
um, first, like like two weeks into ninth grade, um, the lead up to the Iraq War, tenth and eleventh grade, and that was some scary times. It really was. Like I remember vividly, and you have to understand, I was a pretty like, I was a pretty like aware of the new uh, news in international politics. I was kind of a kind of a cosmopolitan kid, and I knew like the international politics, and um, so to see the lead up to like the post 9-11 USA and the um, the whole Patriot Act era, I mean, we're still in the Patriot Act era, but you know, that, that whole era and the lead up to the Iraq war, it was scary. And it really, you know, I think a lot of it's kind of worn off. Maybe a lot of things have happened that have kind of desensitized me to that time, but it was a pretty scary kind of a, an odd kind of authoritarian jingoistic, nationalistic time and it was pretty clear that to me at that age and i could have been even younger and i mean it was pretty clear that you know saddam and iraq had nothing to do with with it and it was going to happen no matter what anyway i mean there was really no debate about it and uh when i go back i i do have a habit of looking at stuff related to actually 9-11 attacks like like the you know like uh video footage and stuff that was going media from the time and like uh yeah i mean people were pretty much just like let's kill all of them let's just go after i mean people if you hear the things that were said after 9 11 in those intervening like few years after the attacks it was um the things that people said and that you could not even i mean as, as crazy as people think things are now like you couldn't imagine hearing somebody kind of say these things but in the on the on the tv and the radio and, and open media um so it was a pretty scary time the war happened a bunch of people died a whole bunch of iraqis died then a whole bunch more stuff happened and a bunch more iraqis died and you know rinse and repeat and it's obviously at this point a cycle that's going to continue and continue so i guess i was shaped by that experience and i know that you know it's going to happen at least once or twice maybe even more times a generation so it's you know it's a worthwhile struggle in my opinion yeah i remember those times vividly as well i'm, I'm not too much older than you a couple of years or so and i was probably in my um i was ba probably barely 20 when um during the lead up to the iraq war and i was uh, passionately I was also like you, I was very aware of sort of uh, international politics and, you know, the, the U.S. role in that. So I was very passionately uh, anti-Bush and um, anti-war, anti-Patriot Act at the time. And it was, I remember exactly what you're saying, the average person was uh, like, it was beyond jingoism. It was uh, almost like a bloodlust. It was a frenzy like a, a frenzy of people who just wanted they didn't care who we were bombing they just wanted us killing people you know and now the thing is is i think there's a lot less people that want, just want to see blood but the wars just continue on you know what i mean and i've been anti-war that's kind of my baseline I, my parents were huge anti-war activists and my first memories as a child were going to protest Reagan's wars in South America and then the, the Gulf War. But I was a young kid there. I didn't really know. I was just dragged along, you know. But my baseline was always uh, anti-war. But I, during, you know, the Bush years, 
I had, you know, I just become a, an adult and kind of, um, was going to those protests of my, you know, own volition. Cause I was very passionately anti-war. Um, the thing is though, I'm reminded of something that Scott Horton said when he was on the episode, I think it was the Afghanistan episode. And he says, you know, anti-war activists didn't stop the war in Afghanistan. The clock stopped the war in Afghanistan. We just ran out of time and money and uh, it wasn't working and, and, and nobody cared about being in Afghanistan anymore. And um, it wasn't protests. It wasn't um, calling your congressman. It wasn't any of these things. It was simply, it just couldn't continue anymore. So part of me worries that that's how war is going to have to end. It, it to one it just can't continue anymore. Now, uh, that's not to say there's no hope. It's possible that we could replicate that somehow, um, either through, um, you know, so lots of other law, bad, bad laws are, um, are done away with because they become just unenforceable, like prohibition, the drug war, those sort of things. So what uh, it's, might be possible that we could make um, war just unexecutable. Um, and I don't have a, a good, simple answer for how to do that. Um, you know, my my go-to answer has always been, well, we just need to remove our resources from the war machine. But um, it seems they'll just keep printing money. So um, we have to somehow... I don't want to sound too much of an accelerationist or anything, but we have to somehow accelerate that process um, of them just no longer being able to execute war. What do you think? Yeah, um, I don't. I don't know the answer. I do agree that we anti-war marches and rallies didn't end any wars. They never have, and I don't think. Fortunately, we don't go into the expectation. I think these days or I don't know if ever that they directly will but um, probably the closest thing to do is actually agorism is but it's it's in the course of kind of the, the goal of large numbers of people withdrawing from um, you know cooperation with the state you know in the course of that as a result of that there will be eventually it'll eventually be eventually become more difficult and more difficult. Um, that's a thought. I don't know if people will ever do it with an ideological bent towards specifically ending the warfare state. I mean, of all hot-button political issues, it sort of seems like, um, and I don't know, there's, there obviously there are like generational divides with this, but it does seem like an issue that's pretty wide-reaching with different kinds of people. But, you know, like, like you said, people protest, people rally, people hate the war uh the wars but they still happen and that kind of reminds me of it reminds me of the first presidential debates that i saw as a kid excuse me which was uh, for like the 2000 election when bush said in debates he's you know that saddam hussein was going to kill which was try to kill his daddy or or whatever and it's, all this stuff needs to be done and um that was the that was obviously the plan this was well before um this is not a conspiracy this is just him like saying it campaigning and then 2003 they're going for it and everybody just kind of uh goes along with it but even if I mean, a lot of people didn't there were a huge protest they weren't really covered but 
you know, clearly there's not people protest marching in the streets, I think, for war and demanding it. So I think the forces that are that are kind of guiding this thing along, you know, I don't know if they would be responded to. I don't know if they'd be responded to like um, massive amounts of resistance, like massive amounts of resistance in the street, coordinated resistance and, and, and this stuff, which I don't expect. But I don't think there's much people can do in terms of like politics, public opinion or anything that can really stop these things once they're. You know, once these plans are, once plans as big as invading a country the size of Iraq are, like, once that's in the crosshairs, I don't think that's going to change. It was going to happen no matter what. Yeah, here. so here's the thing, and, and help me flesh this out. So one could say that the Vietnam War was stopped by protesting in the streets, Right. Um, you could also say that the Vietnam War was just, it was done. It was lost. It couldn't have been won if you tried. And they were just, between the popular, uh, the, the lack of popular support among the people and the just the logistic nightmare, it just sort of crumbled, right? So there was lots of people out in the streets then, and you could say that that stopped a war. There was lots of people, there was uh, quite a bit of people, uh, quite a number of people out in the streets and um, and also online and writing articles against the the, the war, um, against boots on the ground in Syria anyway. There had already been uh, a covert CIA war in Syria during, this is under Obama, um, Operation Timber, Timber Sycamore. Um, they had already done a CIA war, but he was talking about invading and um, people were outraged across the political spectrum, left and right, and um, they didn't want a war in Syria. And you could say that um, protest in one form or another uh, stopped that. But like you said, I, I was at the protests in Washington for um, the lead up to the Iraq war. There was hundreds of thousands of people there to protest uh, the Iraq war. And um, it didn't stop it. So what? what is the, my question is, I guess, is what I'm trying to figure out kind of as I'm talking about this, is there has to be, a, there's another var variable that we're missing besides just protesting. Because I named a couple of um, times that protesting seemed to end a war. And then I, I there was probably, there was more people at um, the protest to stop the Iraq war than there was in protests for the Syrian war. So what's, what was the difference there? You know what I mean? Like what, what are, what am I, what variable are we missing that actually stopped these wars? You know, well, I, I don't I, have the answer. Well, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I'm a, I don't think there was a huge desire to actually have boots on the ground. I mean, there, are, there are, there were and are boots on the ground in Syria. And I think there's, you know, I think they have about as much involvement as they, they, they want to. I mean, they have tons of involvement with through through proxy groups and stuff. Um, in regards to the Syria war, I just don't think that was in the cards. And I do think on some level, I don't, I don't think the public would have, it was too, too, there's been too many. We're, we're on the down, down slope, the downside, the withdrawal. And really the, like the, there's something called war fatigue. Like people don't, people are, they want out. They want the troops out now. That's, that happens after after ten years of war. Or so, um, so I don't think it, that was going to happen 
there's some amount of public opinion you just can't overcome. So, but putting the Syria aside, I think um, I think uh, one issue I have is that like no protests so far or rallies in the streets have ever prevented a war, even if they may stop a war that's unpopular that doesn't seem to be winnable. And there's a whole conversation to be had whether there's a real end goal in any of these things. Um, I don't really think there is. Um, doesn't seem like that's the, there's no war there's no real winning conditions in these wars they just last and they move on to the next next one but you know I, yeah i don't i don't see um any real war that's ever been planned as as a full-scale war ever been stopped by uh by protesting so i, I think the syria example does does hit on something like uh, you know there could at some point be a change in consciousness that doesn't just last for the period that like the, from the from the high point of the war to where people just get too tired of all the dead bodies and dismembered people increasingly more just more um maimed and disabled people than um than actually dead just because of metal te medical technology and that's a huge reminder too because they're walking around or rolling around or whatever they're doing um they're visible and alive um i mean that could be something that could be a, cha a change from in the past, although you know, coffins often change public opinion. Um, but yeah, so you you can see pro protesting start to have an effect at that point. But then this seems to be like a generational cycle. Well, then okay, so there was not going to be any major wars after the Vietnam for how many years? Let's see. Uh, so not seventy two, and then by nineteen ninety, we're gearing up for another one. That everybody's like basically with the attitude of this is long overdue. We need to go show American might. I mean, yeah, real excited for that war. George, yeah. George Bush said that he said, we have finally beaten Vietnam syndrome. Oh, I'm which, sure. Yeah. 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 Which was people being tired of war. And I think you're right. I think it's a cyclical that, thing. Yes. And, and maybe we have to get there again, but here we are 20 years later, you know? So I think you're right that most people are, they're not anti-war, but they are tired of war. Do you know what I mean? And there's a difference there. It's like you and I are against war. I think most people today are just sort of sick of this. We've been at the same wars and blah, 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 and over and over again with no real, like you said, no real goals or strategy for 20 years now. And they're like, I, I just, I'm not on board with this anymore. You know, like. But how many people have cycled in and out of those deployments and have seen that there's nothing, no progress being made, no real goals, no real aims. Um, those people don't really come out of it with like a positive view. So that, that must hurt the nation's morale. Cause that's it just, you just, every year you increase the number of people that go through, get out on military, you know, only a few, few of them stay in for as a career. And, that there's that there's the people the relatives are like the people that died and the injured and relatives the people that are injured and then there's um uh what was i gonna say there's it's, it's it's hard it's a hard sell to sell a public on a war well there's just not a huge cost to a lot of the public but imagining that there there is seem to be like a cost like it's a huge sell when um what one thing i've noticed is that with the exception of you know the period right after 9 11 there's really not I mean, there there is, but at by the point of the teens, like towards the you know half 
halfway point towards the withdrawal of troops from Iraq and the halfway point in Afghanistan. Um, there was that 9-11 rage, that bloodlust like you described, but there's really less and less. When you get closer to like 2020, 2021, there's less and less and less animosity towards Muslim people and Arabs and Afghans. And now I don't see that animosity that and, and it's like what are we what are we fighting you know what's the what's what's, what's who's the enemy what are we fighting and, and why um but they seem to be able to generate it very easily so i i think the only thing that could happen is a change of consciousness where we somehow break the cycle you, you know what i mean like you said they beat uh vietnam syndrome and vietnam syndrome probably took a while to beat but it's going to be it's then there's the Gulf War. Then there's the uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. And, you know, there's going to be a period where there's not going to be any major wars for a while. They're just deeply unpopular. But th there will be a point in another generation or so where it we the cycle will repeat itself unless we can kind of change the consciousness. And maybe with the Internet and stuff, if we really, really try, maybe we can. Well, I think... I think you just mentioned something that is possibly in our favor. You got all these like military personnel who just don't believe in it anymore. Do you know what I mean? So if if you can't recruit people and you can't new if you can't recruit new military and the military you have don't believe in the mission anymore, it's only a matter of time before that sort of just grinds to the to a halt. You know, it's like the the former Soviet Union when the the guards on the wall just refused to shoot anybody anymore for climbing over the wall. Yes. Okay. Because they were just, they were over it. They weren't, they were, you know, hungry. They weren't, they didn't believe in it anymore and they just refused to shoot. So I think that's a plus side on our advantage. And man, that's a long, hard way to get to a, that goal. But um, I, th I think you're right. Nobody, nobody believes in this anymore and nobody, nobody cares about muslims anymore either except for the most you know rabid bigoted neocon you know what i mean nobody cares it's not like 2002 when you could convince you know every grandmother that there was a muslim hiding under their bed and they were going to get you and they were going to they were going to you know chemical you know they were going to kill your grandmother your grandmother specifically with chemical weapons and whatever else yeah you're afraid of anybody with a beard you know what i mean like it's not that way anymore nobody cares not but at all. Thing though, and this goes. This is going to lead me to a question that one of our listeners asked. Asked, um, is that intentional? Because so here's the thing: we're we're pivoting. We, the U.S. military, is pivoting towards Asia. They don't. It seems like they don't even care about the Arab world anymore. Do you know what I'm saying? They care about uh, Asia, China, etc. They, they're, I mean, they're, they've been funding Uyghurs since, you know, back in the day. So, um, against China. So maybe, you know, part of the, the propaganda, uh, part of the, you know, and this is me being very cynical and I am, but part of it could be, uh, the propaganda has changed. You know, we're not, uh, there's, they're not like, uh, it's not playing. Oh my God, this is why you should be scared of guys with beards every day anymore now it's well we're we're focused on um china and you know some muslim countries could be a very 
useful ally against a, an Asia pivot. Oh, of course. I mean, I I know quite a bit about the history of Pakistan and uh, Pakistan, for example. As much as people trash talk the country, um, it's maybe not a greatly led country, not a great government or what is, but I mean, they were a key ally of the United States in uh, during the Cold War, and it's, it's, it's kind of a back and forth, and as soon as they're not useful, they, they go away. Um, and until they're useful again. Um, but absolutely, I mean, a lot of the biggest U.S. allies are, um, you know, Muslim-majority countries, but they have pretty pretty awful governments, pretty um, pretty universally. Um, but, yeah, so when you mention the China thing, I don't know if you've uh, – cause I, I haven't listened to any of this stuff. Some of, some of the Mises guys have been doing some decent work on trying to – you know, speaking to the right, I think they're trying to push back on this anti-China propaganda because it's absolutely propaganda. It's um, a, a, a lot of what's said about, and, and, you know, China is also a really heavily propaganda, propagandized, really nationalist right-wing country. Just absolutely, I'm really absolute because I guess, you know, you're coming from um, very ethno-nationalist as well. Very and, and very fascist because, I mean, they were kind of going for the communist deal and then they really corporatized and i think what, what do you get what do you get after that and with the ethno-nationalism mixed in with that that's definitionally fascism and they are rapidly rapidly nationalistic in the country um uh, i don't want to go on a tangent but uh they yeah it, it sucks to be a religious well, or know, ethnic the minority part for me is sorry to interrupt you but the weirdest part for me is you're seeing a lot of the propaganda against china come from sort of alternative media sources so, mm. I, so you're you're hearing it from like mainstream, you know, CNN or whatever. Or no, China's bad, and and yes, they are. They're awful, but they no, they are definitely awful. They're horrible. <laughs> right. But you're also hearing it from like just sort of um, YouTubers and uh, certain prominent podcasters that I'm not mm. going to mention names, and um, you know, sort of alternative media site, sites and that sort of thing, and oh, China and. China's infiltrating our country and and taking away our freedoms and this and that. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You're you're seeing it from not just like um, I don't know if they're useful idiots or CIA spooks or what, but um, you're seeing it. It's the first time in my life that you're seeing propaganda for the war machine um, coming from sort of the alternative media. But what is the alternative media, man? I mean. The the alternative media has supplanted much of the corporate media. So what do you what do you expect very right, so now soon? The main, now they are the mainstream media. Collectively, they, they have more. Yes, exactly right. Yeah. Uh, so let me let me read this question just so I say I can say I can, and it's exactly what we're talking about. So this is from Tacme. He's a regular. They're a regular listener. Techman, uh, Techman. Like tech, Techman, uh, like, tech, tech like te technology. No, T -tac. Oh, tech. Okay. I don't know what the word the, the name means, but okay. he's yeah, I've known him for a while. A lot of people are talking about a US a military pivot away from the Middle East and towards Asia. Is that true? And if true, then why now? And then he uh, they say a, a, a second question which is related and also there's wide, widespread anti-China sentiment in both the Republican and Democrat parties. Everyone in USA is saying the USA needs to reaffirm its commitment to Taiwan, etc. How can the anti-war movement get a foothold here? 
So let me first start out by saying that uh, America never had uh, a commitment with Taiwan. It never had one. Um, Richard Nixon in the 70s went and met with Mao and um, Taiwan had become, that was the Chinese nationalist that lost the, the civil war in China against Mao. And they had, they had moved to what's now called Taiwan. It's called uh, Formosa then, I think, Formosa. And um, the policy of the U.S. was never to support Taiwan. It was, this, the policy for the U.S. was to support the new Maoist government. Um, and they had what was called a one China policy. So they accepted that Beijing was the rightful government of China. Um, later on, they did what was called a strategic ambiguity, which was they weren't uh, they weren't saying anything about it either way. Uh, so America has never had a commitment to uh, to defend Taiwan or support Taiwan in any way. Um, but there is the rhetoric now that we should support um, Taiwan. And where is this coming from and why now? So, um, probably anyway, countries, probably companies to build aircraft carriers. Sorry to inter interrupt, but yeah, <laughs> think of that as a well, guy living in a Navy town. <laughs> so there, there was, a, there was, I believe it was, it was a big new Brzezinski, uh, during the, um, early years of the cold war. And then, um, <clears throat> it was essentially, and then after the cold war ended, it really came into effect. The idea was is that we could never the U, we the U.S. could never allow what's called a near peer competitor. Or so uh, during the Cold War, um, we had a uh, a bipolar world, a multipolar world. You had the Soviet Union and the U.S. as the two world powers. After the Soviet Union fell, the um, the U.S. would decided they wanted that to never happen again. Um, and they wanted no um, sort of uh, amalgamation or conglomerate of countries to be able to rival the U U.S. So the U.S.'s military is stronger than like the next um, 10 militaries combined, the bit, next 10 biggest militaries combined for that reason. So I think what they, the U.S. military fears is that China could possibly become a near peer competitor um, well, i think they are i think that this has been ramping up because they've been rapidly modernizing in the past like 30 years i think they are very much i mean you have to understand i mean we're talking quality plus quantity and obviously they've always kind of had a quantity and lacked quality but uh they've rapidly rapidly and, and anytime i think of china i think look Whatever I think about going on in China, and I keep up, I, I look at, at least see videos, I at least see what's like the service level, what's going on in China. And I think even what I think is, is 10 years behind whatever is like the cutting edge over there. So they, they've, you know, we don't have aircraft carriers. They don't have a blue, they don't have, they can't reach out and touch the US or most of the rest of the world. But I, I, I don't know. I, I think that. I think the so ship has sailed thing. to prevent to prevent that. Um, up until recently, I thought that China could possibly be a regional power, and they are. <laughs> but um, 
they could be like a um, more so than they already are. They already are a regional power, um, but I think they could more further dominate um, Asia and the Middle East because, like you said, they've, they've Africa, they, yeah, and Africa as well. But they just show up there with briefcases full of money. Hmm. They don't. They don't try to like militarily dominate Africa. They just show up and buy infrastructure, which is sure that's economic imperialism. Sure. Here's the thing, though. Their economy is about to implode. Yep. Their real estate state market just shit the bed. And I, I, I read somewhere or heard somewhere recently that their entire population is chronically malnourished, so they can't even feed their own people. So if huh. you can't. If you can't feed your own people, you can't feed an army. And, and if you can't even feed your own people, you can't exert power throughout the world. You know, you know what I'm saying? Their economy is like one twentieth the size of the U.S. And the U.S. overextended itself. So there, there's no possible way that I, I don't think that <clears throat> China is a threat is what I'm saying. I don't think China is a threat to the U.S. I don't even think China is a real threat to u.s global hegemony hegemony i'm so. beginning to think that because i saw a video of like 20 apartment buildings that they never finished just getting imploded because everywhere because because china being like this hierarchical commie country um you got officials at every level just trying to basically uh essentially just build and do stuff just to use up resources to kind of to commit to contribute to this you know annual gdp growth and um so they just build they just build shit constantly just build 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 produce 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 i mean it's the worst aspects of capitalism but like capitalism would never produce that because there's there's too many like mechanisms to stop it but this thing was out of control so um yeah, it's like artificial growth it's, it's completely not, not sustainable at all because the mayor of each town the, the head the, the commie head of each district had had to build like so much use so much resources and and steel and concrete and stuff and they yeah it's i think china is not going to work out economically um so maybe you're right i don't know but i think it's in the in the interest of the u.s um the state the united states to have um have yes. the specter Yes. of a china because i think the popular notion now i think is pretty well set in stone and it has been increasingly so over the past 10 years they're like you know the chinese are a huge threat china's and it there's always a um a market for people like donald trump is saying uh first it was japanese but the, the chinese are kicking their butts we look weak in front of the chinese we we look um you know like we're indecisive and we're we're not you know, it's embarrassing because we're having all these political squabbles and, and we have people people disparaging the president and over there in China, you, you know, it's, you know, the, you know, they're, they're all unified. They're all, they're all strong. I saw like, you'll see like things on, on Twitter, like they're, they're, they're teaching. It was the cutest thing ever kind of in a way, but kind of sickening too. They, they were teaching these little like seven year old girls how to, um, they were dressing them up in little army uniforms, teaching them how to um, shoot mortars. Which, um, yeah, crew-fired weapons are pretty are pretty optimal if you're going to have seven or eight year old child soldiers. Way better than their rifle. But uh, no, um, everybody was like, "Yeah, this is why China's going to kick our ass." And I'm like, "Oh my god, this crap again!" You know, like, no, yeah, I don't. I don't want to have my kids. You know what I mean? 
being taught to fight the, the chai comms from from age five or six i want to live I, I want them to play with lego you know right 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 yeah i mean it's the old you know uh fear the people on the other side of the hill our problems are because of those people over there you know what i mean it's it's the easiest easiest method to uh distract people and send them to war you know what yep. i mean it's like, so and um I don't know how to combat that other than just how we're, we're doing it right now and how others are, but I don't think, I think you're right. I, well, I, I think this is my point, but I don't think that uh, Chinese are a real threat. And I think it's just, they're not fooling people that Osama bin werewolf is coming to get you anymore. So, <laughs> so they listen, need new, they need a new person on the other side of the hit, the hit, the, the hill. You know what I mean? It's, and now it's the Chinese. So have you have you heard any of these guys like Scott Horton and and Pete Quinones, I think have been have been going on about this this China thing? Um, I know they've been doing something about this, and I haven't heard it. But ha have you? Because I think they're I would be willing to bet they're saying the exact same thing. Yes, Maybe, no, um, they're they're, they're both awesome on this. I know, um, and I, I'm it's so refreshing to hear people actually spreading this word because you you very rarely. This is something you're not hearing because I don't, I don't know why. Because, like you said, I guess the people over the hill mindset that people eat that up. Yeah. And well, and I, it's saddening to see even sort of some libertarian-ish types like just buying into this China bad, China bad. Here's the thing: China I saw libertarians. Bad. Yes. And here's the thing: Saddam Hussein was also bad. Terrible. But it's like there's plenty of people telling you that Saddam Hussein is bad. We as libertarians and anti-war, we don't have to carry that water. There's plenty of people already doing that. Okay, we have to tell we have to carry the water of why we are not fucking going to war with them, and we don't need to mu create a martial society to fight the fucking the Hans. You know what I mean? Like we don't have to, or the 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 Arabs. We don't have to like. Sorry, let me calm down. They're very angrily anti-war. But we don't need, we as libertarians, we don't need to tell, to make the arguments to why China is bad. That's already being done. We don't need to make the arguments of why Saddam Hussein was bad or Bashar al-Assad's a dick. You know, like we don't have to make those arguments. They're already, because, they're because already my, being made. We have yeah. to make the arguments as to why we don't have to create a militarized society and go fucking fight these people. That's the argument we have to make as libertarians and as, as people who are anti-war. Because it's, it's by our standards, they're obviously, it's trivial. It's trivial to say that Saddam is, of course he's bad. It's, he's, he's the, it's the, all the problems we have with various states, the United States. I mean, Saddam Hussein, like gassing a bunch of people and ex executing people and yeah, obviously. Uh, yeah, so you're correct. And it, um, but uh, thing you said about uh, uh, several things you said really, you've really touched on some good points. Uh, the, a martial society, I think that's a good a good one. Uh, I just want to say that I was really shocked at how ever since nine eleven, and I'm I'm totally like I, I was again to, to reiterate. I was fourteen, I was thirteen or fourteen or whatever. I was I guess fourteen years old, nine eleven. So I've grown up knowing nothing but the post 9/11 world. So I'm I can look I can look down at myself and at myself right now and the stuff around me in my room. I'm totally involved. Uh, America has become the most 
martial society, I think, in the modern world. I mean, everything is just, I mean, have you noticed this? Everything is just military, military, military. The cars people drive are obviously, like, they're designing cars out of military, the, the clothes people wear. Like, uh, just, just, everybody's just buying up. I don't know. Have you noticed that it's a very militarized, kind of pro-military? I mean, I love guns. I think people should own guns and everything, but they're, they, they do push a... I don't know, very a martial mindset amongst people without without being, you know, dorky North Korea. Yeah, I don't think that's new. Really, I, re I really don't think that's new. I mean, look at America during World War One. You know what I mean? They were yeah, they but were, before World War One, nothing. They knew not people knew nothing of war. They they thought it was like going out, have, going off to have a picnic. I mean, afterwards, sure. And afterwards, they didn't want to speak of war again. But like we we right. had nine eleven, and now and and we still have you know fighter jets and bombers flying over and uh, uh, football stadiums with the with the um, troops marching on the field and the the uh, the football players wearing cam camo uniforms and they're they're advertising Ford and Jeep trucks that are made to look like Hummers and whatnot and people were buying all sorts of tan colored guns and combat boots and body armor and everything that's just like that people were obsessed with that shit which is fine i mean i i love it i'm i'm surrounded by that i'm surrounded by i mean i i used shit. to wear a lot of camo and fatigues and stuff too I was yeah well punk. i was a young punk you know what i mean so i was whatever but no camo's always been cool yeah camo right, itself right. has always been cool i remember that i remember i remember the pre-9-11 camo aesthetic too i was i was about that before then too but like well, here's everything from i think this all comes from from a, a certain mindset it's it's in the way that we actually think it's not what we think about it's in the way that we actually think so okay. I can't remember if it's Horace Mann or Woodrow Wilson said this. Ugh. Horace Mann is like one of the yes. godfathers of American education. Shivers for both of them. Ugh. And he said the goal of the education system is to create obedient workers and soldiers. People just start uh, smart enough to um, run the levers and the and the um, buttons, but not smart enough to question um, orders. And I think we're a hundred years from that. And I know this is an old trope. It's like, oh, it's the education system. But I think we're a hundred and some odd years into that um, Prussian education system that was designed for exactly this to create sort of very obedient, jingoist, more um, regimented society and, and, and mindset. Um, that I think that that is the effect of that. So okay. it's not even just like what people think about it's it's like how you think you know what i mean so it's um you your brain after years and years generations of this education system people's brains start to desire regimentation mm. and it's, it's like uh chomsky says is like you're allowed very passionate um debate um within very narrow parameters you know what I mean? Yes. So they, people's brains at this point, and I'm not talking down to people. It's, it's all of us. It's me. It's you. It's everybody has gone through this. Um, people's brains start to sort of desire order after going through this education system. Um, mm -hmm. and, it, and it doesn't really matter what you think about or what you debate about the, the fundamental 
framework is still that martial culture. You know what I mean? And so buying all these fucking Humvees and liking jets and, and rah, 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 and fucking whatever, um, you know, bombs and liking all that stuff. That's kind of just a, a symptom of that. Yeah. Okay. Um, here's another one though. Um, I did have something I wanted to say about that. Lost that turn of thought. But another thing I was going to say is with, with China though, because, okay, frankly, U.S. is not going to go to war with China. China and the U.S. are each other's biggest trading partners. We're not going to war. So we both have nukes. And we have both. And, yeah. yeah and, and so many story. reasons. Right. But, but okay. So another thing is, so it, uh, replace a lot of this. I mean, it's more, it's, it's, an, it's more than a hundred percent. It's not like you're taking one chunk of this or the, the military and replacing it with the economic argument, but there's this economic competition argument. And that's great because they can keep up the propaganda war without ever actually having to go to war. Cause they're not, they're a hundred percent not going to war. Um, 99.97% you know, not going to war. I think that's almost be more beneficial for them. But, yeah. But yeah. there's this argument the same kind of argument, like, oh, they're laughing at us. We're so weak. By the way, China is um, just had a whole thing where they're, they they won't show effeminate men on TV, and they 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 want everybody to eat more meat and work out, and um, uh, it was a whole bunch of stuff they were trying to crack down on, like, like K-pop and stuff, because everybody was being too lazy and effeminate. Because they're you know why that is? They're fascists. I don't know why. No, no, no. Uh, the, well, yes, they're fascists, but. The reason they're trying to do that is because their population is literally dying. So they're they're no longer people are no longer breeding there. Yes, there's a lot of people there, but there's the younger generations aren't having kids at all. Uh, well, one, one child policy, and then there was the gender yep. balance, and then there was the fact that people just got used to having one kid. So once that they didn't need they're a not even one having child one policy. kid anymore. They're not even having one. Yeah. It, their average their average birth rate is like 0.5 kids. Yeah. Oh, so that's that, not good. Uh, uh that's not good. They're worried they're worried about that a lot. Japan is also worried about this. Yeah, they've had that problem for a while. Uh, open up the right. borders. Open up the borders. Right. Yeah, yeah. See, and that's that's just proving that these sort of uh closed borders homogenized societies they don't really work because it, they just sort of slowly becomes sterile and doesn't it can't it can't reproduce itself anymore. I don't uh, want to go into that issue. That's just a whole nother one. That, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Right. But, uh, but yeah, but, I know you're right. You're right though, that um, it's, uh, it's great. Cause we're never, it's just like uh, the cold war again. We never actually have to go to war with them. We can just build up and build up and sell weapons forever. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and, but and, and then the other, that's, that's really probably it. That probably hits the nail on the head right there. But like what, what I was saying is that they, they um the argument isn't though they're laughing at us because we're we're weak and we're not you know brave and ready to you know go to war fight for our country it's like they're laughing at us because our steel production sucks so we have to have more tariffs and more nationalization or whatever of centralization so the big a big theme i've seen is in response to this and other things in response to all this stuff where they hate the, the tech companies and in microsoft and apple um you see this real turn, uh, supposed turn of, of like the far right, which what I call the far right is just the hardcore Republicans and whatnot. And uh, they obviously extend past the Republican Party. But like uh, conservatives, really the, the wingnut conservatives, they're really turning to, to towards 
pretty much uh, mirroring, you know, Marxist, Leninist, Maoist policies. There's a lady up on up on stage saying America. Um, and I don't know how what kind of education these people have, but um, you don't really need much of an education to know common sense. America shouldn't ever have to import anything. Now, I know people that say America should never ever allow anybody to enter enter its borders, um, and that's just that's just the most nuttiest thing I've ever heard in my life. That's uh, North Korean economics. Um, and between that and like the bill, see the bill trying to uh, crack down on companies with quote unquote woke agendas and whatever that is ends up being defined to mean. Um, that I think these these uh, Republicans are going pretty commie. The same at the same time the uh, the Chinese communists are going straight fascist. But it, they yeah. horseshoe it, theory. It's sort of like socialism in one country kind of deal. Um, but I went off on a tangent there, but yeah, no, it's yeah. economic nationalism. Uh, here's the thing, though. So you and I are both um, pretty big fans of distributed production, meaning very localized, um, small scale production. As uh, or at least we think that that's what would a free society would uh, look like. You, uh, your production would be much closer to you. So it's bananas to me that it is cheaper to ship things from a, around the other side of the world than it is to ship things from down the street from me. Do you understand where yeah. I'm going? So um, on the one hand, like, so these po sort of populist, right, uh, economic nationalists, they're right in some sense that um, it's bizarre that we don't produce things here. And it's weird that everything comes from all the way around the other side of the world. Right. So my, the answer though, is not like, Oh, we need to like empower the state here to restrict. Uh, and I'm not against international trade or whatever, whatever the thing. Um, but I just, I think that um, production would be more local in a free society, mostly because it's just fucking cheaper to do that. You know what I mean? It's but without the subsidized infrastructure, but they, they love yeah, infrastructure. Exactly infrastructure. Right. Yeah. Um, so their so their solution is like what's called autarky. So we need to produce everything in our country and not ship everything in. And that's just fucking stupid. That's North Korea. That's uh fascist um Spain. That's J Japan, Imperial Japan. And that's why they're they're um their fucking economies were dying, right? So that's not the answer. My answer is just, okay, we just need to remove the state from production here, and it'll be just fine. You know what I mean? And look, we have... So the answer is not to, like, centralize steel production at, like, in, like... It's not to rebuild all the steel mills in Allentown, Pennsylvania. You know what I mean? The Because we can produce steel... In all sorts, of, it's not like the you know reintroduce the American the big American steel mills and and subsidize them and tariff put tariffs on all the foreign steel. The idea is to have just you know free production. I'm pretty sure we can make super high quality, super boutique uh, alloys or whatever they're called mixtures of. Um, right, we, we might not even be using steel anymore if they, the state had just stayed the fuck out of it and not and not back these. Well, steel you can companies. really you can really finesse steel. Like there is American made steel that's like. 
specialty specialty steel knife blades and stuff like that probably surgical instruments like yeah you you can do a lot of stuff with steel besides just have steel right so yeah you can have but yeah um localized production i mean i can only imagine that with today's technology if you could act, actually have localized production and not have a thing the size of a small city to make the steel which i'm almost positive you can do with today's technology if there was an incentive to develop it that way like i'm pretty sure shipping giant steel girders is rather expensive correct me if i'm wrong but like shipping a bunch of shipping tons of steel at a time on trucks and trains and boats even if you're not shipping it all the way from china you're shipping it over one thing if you're shipping over land on a truck that's way way more expensive than shipping it on a ship yeah especially in in a free society where that cost is not no and even even now like a ship is way cheaper yeah, no, it's expensive now yeah yeah yeah, yeah a ship is way cheaper than any kind of land transportation because it's just more complicated moving right. on land. right yeah so even so basically like like like, like you were saying so okay so we're not going to ship ship the steel from china well it's also super expensive to ship it from from you know uh california to say uh texas you know because you're you're having to go over land routes you're using trains or trucks um you know, obviously, we hate roads, so it'd be exponentially more expensive. Yes, I'm very anti-road. Yeah, don't need them. I mean, I guess I, apparently we have to bring up uh, decentralized production in every podcast, but I think that is like sort of the the answer to this uh, China thing. It's it's always seemed so bizarre to me that people of like you're talking about who i've i've had plenty of interaction with um their answer to like china beating us in trade um is like oh well you need more government intervention here on behalf of xyz factors when that is the problem in the first place that's why everything went to china do you know what i mean because it's it, they the the government has had their uh, fingers in every pie here and also has um you know uh propped up all these uh businesses along such um high economic rents that now they they don't need um it, it's made everything so expensive here okay but uh, how do you how do you reverse that how do you reverse that do you reverse that i don't know that just i don't know what like deregulating an economy looks like when if you say deregulate deregulate and then and then an emergent order will form where where entrepreneurs like yeah, no. fill in the fill in the gaps or do you need a government that actively promotes distributed production in small do you need or nope. pressure or a faction in the government a liberal faction in the government that that wants that nope both things are not neither of those things so <laughs> I, I here's the thing as i used to be uh for deregulation or privatization or whatever um because i think of those things as okay uh markets without regulation except for whatever we come up with as market uh actors and um i i don't want the state involved and i don't want the state um owning or controlling aspects of commerce here's the thing though we live under um a state and any action towards privatization or deregulation will be taken by state actors right 
Sure. So what, what this means in our current society is, uh, you know, it's public choice theory. So it's generally going to mean that a politician and a sort of pushing that sort of thing through is going to do it in a way that benefits that politician. So that's most of the time that's going to be giving cushy contracts to their corporate friends. It's not going to be anything like we would envision um, like some free market where these services and um, that these, you know, organization and production, they all come about through some emergent order. It's uh, it's going to be more corporatism in our current system. Mm -hmm. There is there is no uh, schemes for deregulation and privatization are just that they're scams. They, they, all it is is more of more of the same. So, and I also don't agree that sort of some sort of economic nationalism with tariffs and protectionism is the way to go either. The only option is uh, to build new, to build an entirely new economy and system. That's the only, I don't see any other way. And that goes for war and that goes for production. And to me, those yeah. two are related. Well, production is pretty much in war. These are like some of the biggest, broadest categories of things that happens in society. So yeah, if you're gonna, I, I tend to, think you're you're right on that so i guess what i was asking is like what i was kind of getting at is that so if if we want a state to empower um i'm just thinking of what like agorist steel production would look like but if you want a state to em empower kind of our model of a decentralized distributed economy you, what you're asking is somehow you shot this down already, and I think that rightfully so. You're asking for somehow the state to like disempower and deprivilege its most the people that wield the most power with the government, the the wealthy, the capitalists, the the the, the big stockholders and big um, owners of of large producers um, and large holders of wealth that invest in, into those companies. You know, the, the, the wealthy, the business, the not the small, not the guy owning the record shop down the street. I'm talking about the people that own, you know, huge numbers of shares in, in car producers and major telecom companies and stuff like that. So what you're, what you're asking for is, is the state going to really disempower the people that basically, um, to put it in pretty crude terms, to bought all, bought, have bought all the politicians and have for de decades and generations? Or I guess that's that not being an option. I guess your option is the only option. Yeah. Yeah, no, I you're, you answered my question, the question for me. That's exactly what I said before. Um, the, these people are the state. So to rely on the state to privatize or to regulate or make production stateless is not going to happen. And it, it, even if it does happen, it's not going to happen in the way you think. It's just going to be uh, outsourcing um, state services to their private friends. Yeah, I want to shout out. I want to shout out C4SS, by the way, that um, I just uh, posted uh, a great Roy Child's essay. Um, I think it's, what is it, uh, Big Business Big and the Rise, and the rise of, of American Statism. That, one of the absolute best uh, yeah essays that I've ever read. So anybody who hasn't read that, I just retweeted it on my um, private Twitter. I, I think oh, I retweeted it on next one. I've been passing that one around for years. Uh, to, well, that's from Marcus, not capitalism. So I, anything that's in there, I've read, and that is one of the best. And I think that's one of the probably top five essays that, about um, stuff we talk about that I would recommend to people. So how do we stop war then, as, as agorists? If we well, don't, 
if we don't accept so we talked about how we would um, bring about the production that we want and that's just by going and fucking doing it that's the only way to, that's the only way to do it we can't resist the state or rely on the state to allow us to do these sorts of things we just have to go create new methods of production and commerce and organization and that sort of thing so that still means that the war machine keeps turning so you know for years i said we could you know by taking our resources out of the state's hands you know this is helping to stop the war machine and i might have been right but um you know it seems like a like an undead zombie like even though there's no support for the thing and it's it, they've blown through all this money with for no uh with nothing to show for it it just keeps on going um so i maybe it's at some point in my lifetime it'll grind to a halt i don't know from from people like us and the general population just kind of walking away from it okay but, uh, i i don't know i don't i don't, I don't see uh, um I don't see it. I mean, I guess the Afghanistan war happened for those reasons. So maybe we should expect to see other wars stopping for the same reasons. But it didn't stop. Like I said, it was stopped because time the time was up. How right. do we so how do we prevent the war? So how do we prevent the 20 years previous from happening? That's the thing. Yeah. But I'm glad we're back on war. So we got a little bit of a tangent, but I, I think it all fit in. Well, um, well, you know, war is the health of the state. So, I mean, it is a zombie. These are all, these are all kind of related production, war. People state don't support these wars. Yeah, people don't support these. But you're right. People don't support these wars, and, and, and they can still happen. People don't support the drone campaigns. I don't think you go up to the per, person on the street randomly and say, and they'll be like, yeah, I, I love the drone strikes. I'm, I'm all for that. I mean, outside of Washington D.C. in the Beltway, there might be, yeah, but I don't, I don't, I don't know how much popular support these things need at this point. But I do think you could have. There's a level, there's a level that I don't think you can maintain for long periods of time. But it's a level of like public opinion that they can't overcome. And as for anything, like they, there's a lot of manipulation and a lot of propagandizing it. And if 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 public opinion didn't matter at all then uh, then obviously why would you need to propagandize anybody and why would you need to do it so smoothly and subtly as like compared to like the soviet system or whatever as the american like corporate system you know corporate media yeah you're, i mean you're right but so why isn't it stopping you know what i mean so like you said nobody nobody support i don't want to say nobody most people do not at least actively support this anymore they're kind of done with it you know they might have supported it at one time, but it's fucking twenty years. You know, and they don't have material interest in it. They have like oh, right. the idealist interest, and I that's where that's our advantage right there, is that we can we can counter the ideas, we can counter ideas. We we if people have material interest and they don't have this, I mean, we didn't even we we didn't even get their oil that was promised. Right, none of oil us prices went up from any of this at all. Gas prices went up. Right. It, it just made everything worse for us as well. So I, I don't think any, like materially and otherwise. So you're right. I don't think anybody supports this. And if anybody does, it's pretty easy to sort of convince them once you kind of show them, like, no, this is, doesn't even do what you think it did. You know what I mean? 
So um, I think we have time on our side. And like you said, Af- we said this repeatedly, Afghanistan just ground to a halt. Well, here's the thing. I think we can kind of help that ground to a halt through counter-economics. And yes. by by removing our ourselves from all all of these uh, economic systems, we're, you know, in some small way, we are helping this uh, accelerate the timeline, essentially, and ha- helping this grind to a halt to where it just can't continue anymore. Yeah, well, I think we're a long way from, like, the the agora that um the SDK three was kind of yeah. advocating, we might see, but it would we might see an definitely. end to the terror war for that reason. Okay, but you know what I mean? okay, so I think the answer is um very very much piggybacks on that one. It's like, how do we prevent the amnesia from setting in now? Look, we're, we're, look, we're in now. If the Iraq is over and Afghanistan just ended. So right now, like the pressing concern is is preventing that amnesia from setting in, so that there's not like another uh, cycle that forms in another war in the 2030s or like yeah 2030 probably is about what we do for another one. Right. 2035, 2030, 2035. I look at when the presidential election years are, but probably has something to do with that too. But uh, you know, I think that's what we should do. So we need to keep in the intervening like. 10 to 15 years we need to keep people and i don't know who we is i mean at the we we us collectively people need to kind of not forget how much this stuff sucked and how much how much support it lost because war is deeply deeply unpopular now and there's a lot of facts the facts are on our side we know that every war from the spanish-american war and probably before um was based on a, a absolute lie we know all the all the this this the secrets the backgrounds who had interest in what what companies had what contracts that's all known we know like right now we have audio and vision and, and video recording recordings of what the service people the officers the the enlisted troops thought about that how hopeless they were i mean we know some but what what, what saddens me and what makes me a little bit pessimistic is that we know all of that about Vietnam, I've heard all my life. I've heard just so much info and accounts about how how much Vietnam just sucked so unimaginably bad in every way, and yet we can knowing that we still committed to the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. So that we have working against us, I think. I know it's like you said. We um, all this information is in video, audio. Uh, you know, text, all that is right at our fingertips. And yet we're still at war. You know what I mean? So like, I, I don't know. I want to say that this next cycle around, like after these wars end that, and we have a, a, a brief interval um, that I want to say people won't forget because this is all, it's all very readily available information, but I don't know. Um, um, no, we got to be different this time, you know. But I don't we got to take an active role in this. Yes. Yeah. No, people will forget if if we don't try to like look. I'm I'll put it to you like this. I've always thought that maybe I remember thinking this as a kid. That I wonder if adults remember what it was like to be a child, and I don't think they accurate like accurately. And I tried to like kind of. I think I kind of do remember like my own internal monologue as a kid, like. What I thought that I was pretty self-aware, 
you know, I don't know if uh, people think about that. Point I'm trying to make is, is that like, man, I'm kind of, I'm kind of losing that thought. That was kind of a massive tangent, but yeah, I guess, I guess basically we should, I can tell you what I thought in the lead up to the Iraq war and that whole situation, the post 9-11 period, the implementation of the Patriot Act and whatnot. And like, we can't forget what we were aware of now and how, what people, what, what we think and what people thought now, like we can't just forget that future generations. We can't adopt these attitudes and then they, they kind of just fade away because there's, there's no wars for a while. There's maybe a few targeted strikes here and there. Some of the deployments are drawn down. And then, you know, you have a new generation of troops, of potential troops um, joining up. And they're like, oh yeah. I mean, that's that was that was what happened in World War One. Everybody's like, oh, what's a war? Yeah, it sounds sounds like a jolly good time. And they all went over there and uh, started marching in, in 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 bright colored uniforms and formation bugles and everything. They all got mowed down by machine guns. It sucked. Um, and that I think that happened. And then obviously after nine eleven, everybody wanted to join so badly to avenge the the towers and all that stuff. But um. You know, I don't know what the circumstances are going to be in the future, but they're, they're going to try it again. I mean, I don't even know if they're going to stop. You know, it might be almost be easier just for them to slowly keep grinding away, especially if they're just doing drone wars and they're not. Um, well, that doesn't like, count. Yeah, they can do the drone wars. I mean, that, that right. you know, here and there, uh, eventually there's going to be some pushback at some point with that one. Um one thing I will say about this is, uh, so my experience, I live in one of the most like fed military places in the world. I've met military, I've met military personnel from like every country. I've met people from every agency. I, um, you know, but it's pretty much, that's not really relevant. It's just the, the armed forces. Um, when you see people, people that went over there that are like, you know, decently intelligent and you know, they're maybe they're officers, maybe they're enlisted, been in for a few years. Okay, um, those are the most I know. As speaking as a Muslim, as a practicing Muslim for years, multiple years, like in someone that grew up is non-practicing Muslim. Though, like people that have been over there, for one thing, they've 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 been over to Afghanistan and Iraq in the cities. They've also been over to like Dubai and Bahrain, where there's the fifth whole freaking. Fifth Fleet based in Qatar and all these countries, and they've been to maybe Saudi Arabia. People have done been contractor work over there. Um, so many people have done like Merchant Marine and different kind of contractor work over there and whatnot. I can just infinite number of things. People, I mean, I'm surrounded by people all day that have I've never been even been to the Middle East, and these people have spent tons of their lives there. Um, and they're remarkably tolerant to. Um, Islamic and Muslim people, Arab people, because of, of that experience, and um, and Af Afghans, which aren't Arabs or anything, but so we're, they were not able to dehumanize people, and I, I think more importantly, like with the internet, we're not able to dehumanize people. I I follow ta Taliban on the not even like the leaders on on, on Twitter, Twitter. <laughs> on Twitter. We can't. So, how do you dehumanize right. the enemy at this point? I mean, people are dehumanizing their neighbor at this point to some extent, but they can only do but some. I, I don't think you can dehumanize. So, I don't think you can dehumanize an Afghan or a Tajik or a uh, or a, a Mongol. Right. Yeah, 
or whatever. Well, it's picking the farthest countries I can think of from the U.S. But I, I, I can't. Um, I don't see how you can do that anymore. You can do. You can dehumanize your neighbor. Now, people are dehumanizing their neighbors to some extent in this country, um, and all over the place. But there's a limit to that because you, there's nobody in this world that you don't, you can't see as people because they can just. There are people in rural in 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 India with like don't even have running, you know, indoor plumbing. They have Facebook and they can have Twitter. Right now, how do you so how do you think how do you have the same kind of attitudes that we've had up until now in this environment? And so I if we can, they'll, they'll they'll always be able to do it. They just have to do it differently. So like you said, right now people are othering, uh, making their neighbors the other or whatever the thing. And that's been my fear, even as an anti lifelong anti-war person, is that the empire is actually going to come home. Like, our my uh, the worst thing that could possibly happen to me is I get what I want. That all the wars get ended, and now guess what? You have a standing army on the on our sh own shores. I, I think that ship has sailed. You think? I think that I think we've. We've definitely we've had that ever since the Gulf War. At least, um, yeah, I think they've pretty much done that since the Gulf War and definitely since nine eleven. I mean, I I think yeah, there's been obviously a massive we have a, a militarized police and we have a standing army now. And they're yeah. they're taking the tactics and the the uh, often the personnel yeah. from the, the military. Yes, exactly right. So imagine when uh, that's a small fraction. So what the the what the police get here is military surplus. So that's whatever. Whatever you see on our own shores with the militarization of the police and the standing army we have against our own population, that is a small – that's what the military's already done with. They threw away. Well, I'm talking about the mindset and, and also the, the, small, the, smaller, yes. the smaller gear, the, you know, the, the, but the mindset, the tactics, the right. tactics. Yeah, they're, 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 so, they're, it's, so it's militarized. Bring, no, so now bring 10 times of that home. But I think they do. People, people cycle out of the military after a few years, typically. And where do they end up in the police force, in the federal yeah. bureau of investigation or ATF? Yeah, so I, or I think the real war is, like, is at home. I really do. Like I, I and I think. I mean, there's like a million part, cops. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's part. I think that's part of the reason you're seeing sort of a, a dial back of these wars over there and a ramp up of a cold war with China. And a ramp up of sort of um, uh, the domestic the, shit. The, the domestic <laughs> Pretty much. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I see yeah. You're, seeing a, you're seeing a die down of like these foreign wars. Nobody's, they're not, they're, you know, you're seeing that die, but you're seeing a ramp up of a Cold War so we can still have weapons sales, but you're also seeing a ramp up of the war domestically against the American people. Mm -hmm. So this is possibly a giant shitstorm for us in the coming years uh, and not to be doom and gloom or anything, but um, that might be uh, possibly a worst case scenario than the Bush years and the Patriot Act and the go, we're going to war and blah, blah, blah. It might actually be worse. To some extent. Um, I, in certain I, ways. Yeah. I mean, I follow policing and police stuff. I watch like police videos um, obsessively and just for multiple reasons for that. A lot of it's cause like, I don't know, it seems to be kind of more relevant to like, uh, several reasons. I mean, you know, intel collection, um, that actually is, can be really helpful. And also, like, you know, kind of the way they carry themselves is kind of more relevant to, like, uh, you know, operating 
is a paramilitary and the police are very much a paramilitary organization i've heard police say we are a paramilitary organization they're organized in ever since the first police in the 1820s i mean they've always been paramilitary organization they're not like the you know the the sheriff and his deputized marshals but they're it's a different uh, uh form of organization not to get into too in the weeds in that um the the so i, I watch a lot of uh, police stuff uh, and I mean, you can really obviously clearly see, I mean, what, what are they, it, it's not your like 80s beat cop with the mustache and the leather hat and the nightstick, man. You've got you get every, every single place. You, and honestly, I don't see that much around here. I'll, cops generally wear cop uniforms, at least like, I'm sure they're really functional and breathable, but like kudos to that. Cause whenever I see videos of cops or those cops, like reality shows, they're wearing either episode is brought to you by proud libertarian wear your politics on your sleeve with the great libertarian merchandise from proudlibertarian.com whether you're a voluntarist agorist libertarian anarchist or any shade of freedom in between proudlibertarian.com has you covered literally they have campaign merch as well as a ton of original content created by their design team be sure to check out their collection of black flags as well as their survival gear collection, complete with knives, emergency food, and solar equipment. If you need Liberty merch, ProudLibertarian.com is your go-to place. They take Bitcoin, Ethereum, and other forms of non-fiat, including Doge. Go to ProudLibertarian.com and enter code SEK3 at checkout for 10% off your first purchase. So they are a merchandise and clothing company owned and operated by libertarians. Um, they make a lot of liberty-oriented shirts and stickers, and um, they can set you up with your own line of merchandise. Um, they've got a lot of good stuff over there, so feel free to go check them out. And like, uh, like I said, get 10% off if you enter code SEK3. Thank you. In addition to that, uh, my lady makes tinctures, and right now she is selling a chamomile tincture. Uh, it's a four-ounce bottle with a dropper. Uh, she sells that for ten dollars. Um, it's it's pretty good. I have trouble sleeping sometimes, and uh, it works as as good, if not better, than say melatonin or something along those lines. Uh, if you're interested in that, please reach out to me at uh, S-E-K-M-C-G-O-R-A on Telegram, all caps, and I can get you set up with that. Thanks. Enjoy the episode. But they're they're pretty much openly openly acting and, and using the text. Oh, yeah. um, They have, like, flare cameras in the uh, grills of, of the cop vehicles and, you know, infrared night vision um their intelligence gathering capabilities straight out of the skies of iraq um and they're truly truly frightening some of uh, some of the facial recognitions and uh, some of it's just absolutely horrific i'm not talking about stingrays i'm talking about like like perpetual wide area surveillance and everything but and we should really go into that kind of stuff one day but it's truly frightening the amount of capabilities they do have that are straight out of the war zone um and they're using, you know, and then there's the idea of, of ground-based 
uh, and aerial drones, which are starting to be used by police. I mean, all this stuff that comes out of the war zones goes straight to police departments. I'm not talk talking about surplus. Surplus. I'm talking about the tactics and the uh, actual technologies, the intelligence gathering stuff, and it's it's truly frightening. And um, I don't think they really shy away from being by as uh, serving as a standing army in the U.S. I mean, they even call it the war on drugs, and they do prosecute it like a war. Yeah, I mean, it's, I don't know, was it Rothbard or it might have been Randolph Bourne? He said, war is the health of the state, right? So that's not just saying that um, by going overseas that the war can, the state can expand itself and, and gather more support for doing so. That's also saying that all of these, um, all of these uh, resources it raises and manages for war will be used against its own population for more state control. You know what I mean? So it's not just that the state's getting more support during wartime. It's also that the, the, the state has more control over us after due to warfare. You know what I mean? So it's, it's just what you were saying. Now all of these gadgets, tactics, all these things are now used by um, state actors against the population and that's that's how it goes all the time you know war is the health of the state and that kind of goes to a question i have from uh, a listener and it, the question is uh i don't know the answer to it but it's um what role did war have in the development of the state now i don't know this Exactly. If we're talking about nine thousand years ago in Jer Jericho, or you don't have any America. James C. Scott um, wisdom. Well, I mean, there's a little bit. Sure, like so, the ability for um, in the early proto states, uh, they were city states. Um, it's kind of what we mentioned before. It was the people on the other side of the hill, but they they had the ability because they had a sedentary population due to uh, agriculture. Um, that they could marshal the forces um, for a small army, and it was it was always um, like we were saying before. You know, whenever there's problems at home, you point to the people on the other side of the hill, and you go to war, and um, you know you send the po uh, the pe the population to war so that um, they don't you don't look at your own politicians or leaders or that sort of thing. Um, so that allowed for state and state expansion and resource expansion in the early proto states um but in terms of uh, uh the modern states it's just what we were talking about it's it's um the empire always comes home the the resources uh the state needs to marshal are going to be used against its own population so that answers that question um but uh i don't know uh, i'd have to do more research on the exact um cause and effect of early proto-states but yeah i'd like to think that states um as much as coming out of a, a, a more primitive organizational structure they they were i don't want to say voluntary but they were they were something that was organized somewhat spontaneously that they were probably bands of people one of the main reasons people banded together was uh for protection as either defense or could be in, in, in offense or migrate together and to another place has happened a lot in ancient times um and so your early rulers i mean until you got into 
close to modern times, the king, um, talking about monarchy on Twitter uh, recently, um, uh, the king was just a war chief. He was like originally elected, you know, a, a war chief. There's a war, and you got you have to have a guy like when you're on a ship, you have to have a, a captain who's obeyed. They often elected the captain. Um, and I'm not, I'm not the, no, the nobles and the, the warriors would elect the king, not like everybody. It's not a, it's not a liberal democracy, but uh, you know he the kings often came out of basically being a war chief because uh, you know that war spurs that kind of centralization of power, which I think is another paradigm that's important to this conversation. So like uh, I I'm I'm pretty sure that. Uh, you know, protection. I mean, what were the original cities defined by their walls, these city states? So yeah, warfare was a really important thing, I think. And then, like you mentioned before, you know, you've got to have the uh, the agricultural production, and then that has to be able to be um, be legible and taxed in order to fund the war and feed feed the sold, feed the troops and whatnot. And by the you know, converted to I guess money or whatever, and to, to buy the weapons and raw materials for the weapons and whatnot. Even in the very early, very early stages, so you need a surplus in a way to, to know to know and measure and tax a surplus. So um, I'm pretty sure it's like a um, you know it's a give and take relationship. So it's. You know, wars, conflict may spur the strengthening of the state. The strengthening of the state will serve to, um, you know, encourage war and, and make war more possible and more deadly. So this leads to the, the last question from our listeners then, because I, I think this goes into what you were just saying. So which the question is, which would be better at waging war, the state or private organizations? Oh, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Right. Well, here's the thing. It depends on how you're def you're defining war. So you you were defining war as like, you know, bands of tribes um, fighting other bands of tribes, right? You you also included that in your definition of war. But at what point is that just like a a brawl? Do you know what I mean? Like, at what point is the street gang a state? They're kind of they right, kind of right, are exactly to, right. to an extent. Exactly right. So if you've got like dozens of people fighting other dozens of people, are we talking about war? Like I, I don't really think of war that way. I think of, yeah. I think of war as, um, uh, you know, a conflict between two centralized states. Do you know what I mean? Like, so if you were in a uh, a free society, we'll get into nerdy speculation here, right? If you were in a free society, and you had sort of small organizations and one decided to fight another organization you're talking at best like dozens of people right are we talking about war here or is this like i mean i've seen i've seen dozens of people fight dozens of people at biker bars <laughs> you know what i mean like so um i don't think that you can without a state you can marshal the amount of people and forces necessary that i would even define it as war you're, I mean, it's conflict, sure. You know what I mean? But I, I don't think of it as, as war anymore. And I would be interested to see what the actual definition of war is. But the question being, uh, to go to their question, to not dodge their question, because they weren't looking for a semantical answer there. But well, okay. Um, so the state, everybody says the state is uh, inefficient and terrible at doing things, right? But it's not. 
the state just doesn't do what most people think it does. The state is very good at killing lots of people and caging lots of people and controlling lots of people, right? That's what it does. That's what it does. It doesn't do any of the other things that most people think it does well because it's not. that's not what it's there to do. It's there to control, kill, cage. That's it. I fully agree. That's that's the answer, basically, right, right there. Yeah. So, so, yes, well, I'll elaborate more. So, yes, the state is very good at killing lots of people and destroying lots of things and marshalling a large centralized force against another large centralized force. But as we've seen time and time again, it does it fails every time at a decentralized insurgency. And that's where, I don't want to say private organizations, but that's where a stateless um I don't want to say military force either. A stateless uh, arms force would excel, would be at a sort of an insurgency or a small decentralized um, conflict or warfare. Um, and that's that's good at um, defending, but that is not good at conquering other lands, which a centralized military is quite good at conquering other centralized militaries and occupying land for a time. So that's my answer. My answer to that question. That's a good answer that actually answers the, I, I think what the, the um, listener was actually getting at. I appreciate you doing that. I'm going to be shitty and go back to the semantic argument um, because as, as Roth body and I'm not as Roth body, sorry, but to put on a uh, Roth body and hat here, I think everybody let's put on our Roth body and hats. Um, and I'm no, this is not uh, exclusive to Rothbard, but I know he was, I can point at least to anatomy in the state where, uh, Man, actually, I don't know where he pointed that out, but um, I think of this as Rothbardians. So what's 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 private? What's public? I mean, these are kind of arbitrary terms. These are like legal legalist term, legalistic terms, um, defined by the state, defined by the current paradigm. Um, and I, I very very much Rothbardian to see like the state is a, is an organization of it's a group of individual people, and you know uh, Walmart's a organization is a group of individual people and your you know your your bowling league is a organization that's a group of individual people probably a lot more voluntary in, in, in the way it you know operates but you know it, it, yes we, we we can define what a state is but like what is public what is private you know and what would be private in a if a, a so-called so-called stateless society everything would be just by nature private no matter what it is even if it's not even if it's trying to reimpose a state or something. So um, not to say the argument is totally semantics. I think you gave the best answer there. But um, if you are to see the state as a group of, you know, bureaucrats, politicians, and technocrats, like, like serving constituencies, which include voters, but include, you know, all kinds of people um and you see it as the organization that claims the monopoly on the use legitimate use of violence or whatever the uh, actual definition of a state is um then where do you draw on you know like uh what what is a private organization what is a what is a what, what is a state so in our like i agree with you in our current paradigm those terms are meaningless so if you want to get to like what does private mean, uh, that gets into a real fuzzy area because private just means the ability to exclude, right? 
So um, I, I remember when um just to talk it back to like uh, when Victor was on and he he called um or he he I think he was quoting uh, Stack Three. Uh, Sam Conkin as saying when he when he got mugged and, and stabbed by the dude called the guy a freelance status. That's a very Rothbardian phrase, you know what I mean? Because he was, um, you know, he was he's saying this guy's, uh, you know, using violent force to express appropriate property, and it's maybe not the the, the Max the Max Weber um, definition of state, but I mean, it really gets down to kind of like uh, how how absurd do you want to make this lack of distinction? But really, like, there is no precise distinction without just playing into like what they call themselves. Yeah, no, that's, uh, I, I agree with you there. But uh, uh, like a street yeah. gang would actually maintain a, the, the monopoly on the use of force in its given territory and, and the local cops might not have the, uh, any sort of claim to the use of force in that area if it's yeah, strong a street gang. So yeah, like where, where you really, it is there, you do get into gray areas. This is not just, you know, speculation. Yeah, I don't think there is a clear distinction, and I don't like to use those terms. I, I I don't use those terms for that reason. I think uh, they're not useful, and they they they're not very good um, um, descriptors in uh, an analysis of our current uh, state and uh, economy. Um, no, because, yeah, I think that's a central. Is. I think that's a central theme with us. We don't talk about it in these terms that much, but I think right. you know. I don't think we do like when we talk. And we talk with our guests. I don't think we make like the public-private distinction like most people. And I think like that's our ideas kind of require that. Right. And even in a free society, like so give, given like we see our ideal society, right? I don't mm -hmm. think there would be much of a public-private distinction either. So at least not in a way that really clearly made sense. So if private is the ability to exclude, this also applies to collective property right mm -hmm. so like an entire um neighborhood town uh county could own this specific piece of land collectively <laughs> um for use for all the people that live there and that sort of thing so we're talking about commons right but they may not want um everybody in the world coming to this particular place Right. So mm -hmm. they're still they still collectively have the ability to exclude. So then where do you draw the line there? What are we you know, what are we even talking about? So I don't um, I still don't think even in a free society that it's very cut and dry. Yeah, yeah we need to save this for an episode on property, which I yes, really want to do. We should do an episode on property. I agree. This is a great segue to the fact that we uh, definitely plan on doing an episode on, just on property and anything that comes from that. Yeah, I thought that might be a short episode, but I think that's actually going to be a long. No, we can do. We, we can we at least fill an episode on that. Yeah. Okay, we're hitting. We're we're approaching two hours. I think it's time because there's only two people. I feel like I've talked an absolute ton. Okay. Yeah, we can start wrapping it up. But um, yeah. do we have any more listeners? Check out questions? And, the, and the wars and um, in the damn wars and the damn wars on Twitter and wherever else he, he is, uh, Magnus and. Yeah. Um, What's well, you know, you know, just to point out, it's a collaborative project too. So he's got, it's a collaborative project. I know there's one other big organizer, and it's um, it's it's definitely supposed to be um, post-political, but basically, you know, all sorts of, uh, of persuasions, and they they definitely um, get their haters, but I think I think that just shows that they're you know potentially going to make waves. 
Yeah, and I think we're going to do our part to help uh, revitalize uh, a broad anti-war movement as well. I'm, I'm interested in that as well. Um, so if anybody listening to this um, wants to get involved, please reach out to um, um, us, uh, wherever you can find us, either on our Twitter. Penguin, what's the Twitter? Um, Agora underscore pod. Yep, and I'm on, uh, you can find uh, the Agora podcast on Telegram and also uh, me on Telegram. It's S-E-K-M-C-G-O-R-A, all one word, all caps. And um, you can find out where you can uh, help out more with some anti-war activism because I'm tired of these fucking wars. Yep. Um, I think we could also do an episode, or at least I have have an episode just on just on the anti-war movement. Um, I know we already talked about that, but just about the history of it, and you know so much about the libertarian anti-war movement. Um, got things to say about Ron Paul and that that whole thing, and that's within very much within my memory too. So, the um, anti-war movement uh, in this country was started by Catholic conservative conservatives. Yes, and I've I've met them. They're still at it. I've met them. My they first are. protest was my first my first protest was um, June, I think, or May, and I that's that's the first people that I I've ever networked with for anti-war was was was, was Catholic was like anti-war Catholics. Yep. Actually, I take that back. The modern anti-war movement was started by uh, conservative Catholics. Mm-hmm. If you want to go back to like protesting. Um, the Indian Wars in the U.S. or um, like even the American Revolution. That was the Quakers. Oh, yeah. The Quakers yeah. were uh, the ones protesting it then. But um, in terms of the modern uh, anti-war movement, yeah, that's that's the Catholics. But. Yeah, and I, honestly, um, I am totally down. If you're in Virginia or, or the especially southeastern Virginia, um uh, please uh, get in contact with me uh, between you know the Catholic anti-war, the Black Lives Matter, the uh, libertarian libertarian types, um, anarchist left wingers, whoever wants to end the damn wars. Basically, I am totally down, and that is the entire goal. Because um, frankly, we don't have the numbers otherwise anyway. But it's also just a fun time. I Are think you gonna reach best- out to some local organizations? Well, you know, we have black. Uh, we okay. I'll give you my area We have Black Lives Matter seven five seven. The one of the, the you know heterodox Black Lives Matter groups down here. I don't know if you heard of them, but they're the, they're the pro two A kind of just out there in your face um, BLM. They're down here, and like I said, I've met some old Catholic anti war hippies, and there's people out here for sure. Um, I don't know how many like lefties or libertarians and stuff types that are you know used to protesting around this area it's kind of a conservative area i guess um we got a bunch of universities and stuff but i want to see what i can make happen sure and i yeah. the boogs of course the boogs boogaloos whatever all that, that thing libertarians I, I met some ancaps in front of the white house and like you guys are from my, my hometown and i actually exchanged numbers with them i need to reach out to them so yeah cool I might do the same. I don't know. I don't know. I might do the same. Reach out to a couple organizations around here. I don't know how prevalent like Black Lives Matter is here, but um, I know there's some organizations, and I know some. I know some libertarians around here. So well, like I said, well, the thing is, like 
that's the thing that our Black Lives Matters are no, known for is marching with the Boogaloo's, and that's why they're so disparaged yeah. by a lot of the other black, like the other pro-black, uh, you know, basically Black Lives Matters movements, because you know, then they're the, they're fascists, and then you're you're and uh, Antifa's that's a whole shit show, but don't want to go into all that drama. Um, but uh, definitely cool people, and we've got we've got yeah we've got a lot of BLM. A lot of um, uh, boogaloo's, a lot of probably a lot of stuff that I, I people I haven't ever even met or encountered yet. That uh, once well, I start scratching the surface, yeah, bring yeah, them on the sure. bring them on the podcast, shit. <laughs> dude. I've yeah, there's some old heads that probably have done a ton of protesting that I should probably, yeah, um, that'd be cool. I reach out to cool. them. I mean, just I for different perspective. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, yeah. you know where to meet. You know where to reach out to us. Uh, my personal Twitter is on the um, podcast Twitter, but definitely follow the podcast Twitter so you can get our feed. Or I guess you can follow us on SoundCloud. Or subscribe, however that works. Um, so uh, you can find us on SoundCloud, Apple, Apple Music, and um, yeah, directly on Anchor. Anchor puts it on all those all those platforms. Right, so right, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, a lot of people follow us there. I think. I would say I know a lot of people would disagree. I was about the value of Twitter as a platform, but this is definitely exactly what Twitter was made for. Follow our um, Twitter feed, follow our Telegram. We post a lot of. Um, well, we might post some memes. We might post some articles. We might post discussions and definitely updates and our new podcast release. Yeah, I post a lot to the Telegram. A lot of interesting stuff and a lot of shit posting and a lot of memes. Oh yeah. All right. Well, thank you for joining us, guys. It's been a great discussion. I felt like I felt like because there's only two of us, it's been like a three-hour episode. To be honest with you, no, that was that was a good one. A lot of info, and we rambled on and on. So, thanks, guys. Um, I hope you guys like it. I hope you guys like our rambling because we sure did a lot of that. <laughs> Peace, guys. All right. Take care.